Hello and welcome. My name's Mike. I'm the pastor at Watch It Baptist Church. You're with us at WBC Online and we're looking at Titus in the second of a three-part series. We looked uh, previously at chapter one and had a good look at how Paul seems to be really wanting to remind Titus, who is his, um, his fellow uh, traveller, his companion, but also somebody he seems to give tasks to go and travel and, and be Paul's representative where he can't be, uh, that he that Paul wanted Titus to understand this really deep connection between faith understanding and a way of living that he calls godliness in that first chapter. We're going to be looking a bit more at that connection and we're going to do that through chapter two. So the next thing I'm going to do is read chapter two. I'm reading from the NIV uh, and it goes something like this. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderous or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you inspire us to hear what Paul and Titus were demonstrating to those Christians at Crete. Would you help us hear and would you help us be changed? Now we might not be satisfied with being who we have been, but that we might aspire to being what you call us to be. Amen. Right then, there's a lot of fun to be had with this passage. And by fun, I kind of mean complication and potentially awkward questions. Uh, what we're looking at here is really a, a little potted version from Paul to Titus. So Paul is the one writing the letter, Titus is the one receiving it, but it's expected to be read aloud in churches. So Paul is giving Titus a potted version of how he must lead people in churches on Crete. 
and our previous chapter has told us that there are churches in different towns. So it would seem there's a whole series of churches around the island of Crete, which is in, in the Mediterranean, uh, all of which need good leadership, and that includes teaching. So in this chapter, Paul wants to first of all show a really sharp contrast with what has come before it. I am just going to have a quick uh, flick back to the end of chapter one so that we can see how that contrast works. At the end of chapter one, Paul writes this, uh, they, and that is to say um, those who are rebellious and meaningless, uh, meaningless talking, um, false teachers, they uh, claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. That's the first verse of chapter two. So what Paul is doing straight away here at the beginning of this chapter, remember he didn't put the chapter markings in, is throwing into contrast the two bits of teaching, the teaching of those who are opposed to the good news that Paul and Titus are bringing and Titus himself, who has a different way of working. Now, Paul really fine tunes his message at this point by wanting to talk about the way different groups of people behave within the church. It's another opportunity for us to remember that when Paul writes, he's expecting his letter to be read aloud. So in this instance, Titus is given the responsibilities charged with teaching the Christians, the disciples on Crete, how they should live. And the reason why Paul thinks this is important is really summed up uh, in, well, in a way, by the end of those instructions to slaves. We're jumping straight away down to verse 10, but we will come back to other stuff too. Uh, slaves are not to steal from their masters, but to show they can be fully trusted, steal those in every way, they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. All these instructions to different groups within the fellowship are designed to make sure that the message of Jesus is not um, diluted or corrupted by Christians behaving in ways that they shouldn't behave. Because Paul knows that uh, we are expected in this world to put our money where our mouth is. If we say that we believe something's important, we should then carry through with that. Years ago, when I was uh, a student, I was in I don't know, 19, 20 years old, uh, in Northampton, I was part of a Christian Union football team and we believed that part of the thing that was most important about us taking part in the competition that we were in, which was uh, teams from within the college I was at, was to demonstrate what it means to play football well, not to play with particularly high sets of skill, we hoped to do that but we were aware of our limitations, but to play well in terms of how we engage with the opposition uh, not cheating, not trying to pull the wool over the referee's eyes, things like that. We were determined that we would set a good example of how to play football so that our behaviour would reflect well on the fact that we were Christians. We were the Christian Union and we wanted Christians to be understood to be those who are honest and have integrity and are kind and do the right thing. This is a big part of what Paul is driving at in these verses. If you're going to be good ambassadors for the good news of Jesus, that has to be not just about what you say, but also about the way that you live, how you demonstrate day-to-day -day life. Now, 
this is perhaps not news to many of us. But I think what, what we find in Crete, what I believe Paul is demonstrating, he found in Crete, is a challenge that our church, the church in the early 21st century, also faces. We have, if you like, had a massive advantage for generations uh, in Western Europe and America that um, there has been an assumption that our societies built on some Christian knowledge and some Christian ways of doing things. Now that reality has been ebbing away for a little while now and it's no longer the case that people just know things uh, about the Bible or about what Jesus stands for. So in lots of ways our experience now is very much like the experience of those churches in Crete. The only way people are going to know what Christians are actually like is by watching Christians live. If we're going to be faithful disciples we're going to have to live in a way that shows what Jesus stands for. Now I think Crete is showing us in, in this uh, message, in this letter, um, what we're learning is that the, the disciples on Crete were fairly convinced that as long as they knew that they were safe in Jesus, it didn't really matter how they behaved. In fact, and I realise I'm skipping down to the slaves bit again, but bear with me. If you take a look at that section on slave verses 9 and 10, it says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. The implication there is that slaves who trusted Jesus, slaves who were Christians, slaves who were disciples, on some level seemed to feel that they didn't have to maintain an appropriate relationship with their masters. They could behave how they want to. They didn't have to be subject to their masters in everything. They could talk back to them if they wanted to. And Paul says this isn't the way that we do things as disciples. We are subject to, doing, to, to Jesus and therefore we should be living the way he calls us to live. The fact that slaves need to be taught this suggests that they weren't doing it already. It may indeed be, and, and I'm, I'd imagine some of us have come across Christians like this, it may have been that those slaves felt that because they knew Jesus and then maybe their masters didn't, that they weren't any longer really to be subject to their masters. They knew the king of the world. They knew the Lord of all creation. Why would their master have any authority over them? But Paul doesn't give them this option. He says, you are to behave in an appropriate way for the place in which you'll find yourself. Now we as 21st century people might say, why is Paul not urging slaves to rise up against their masters, uh, free themselves and take control of their own lives? After all, they are made in the image of God and God would not want them to be in slavery. I agree, God wouldn't and doesn't. And indeed that has an implication for us in the ways in which we are able, through the organisations that exist in our time, to fight modern slavery in all its forms. So God isn't okay with slavery, but Paul is writing in his own context. And so he's writing to people about the situation that they find as normal where they are. He might, as well, he might just as well um, 
lead the charge to abolish slavery uh, as much as suggest that perhaps people might send a rocket up to the moon. It's so far removed from, um, from what ordinary life is like, from what the assumptions are that people live by. It, it is a, a crazy idea. People had been trading in slaves for a long time before that and would continue to do so for hundreds of years after. Reading Tom Wright's comments on this piece have reminded me of the importance of allowing Paul to talk to his own audience and not expecting that he should be talking to us. Paul is saying to Titus, um, slaves have a responsibility to behave well where they find themselves. Elsewhere, Paul seems to say, if you can get your freedom as a slave, if you can get to be free, then go for it. But in this situation, he's not addressing that. He's simply saying, where you are, there's an expectation of what good behaviour is, what Christ-like behaviour is. So, with that as an underlying understanding of what Paul is asking Titus to focus on, let's look at the other sections too. So, verse 2, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-control and sound in faith, love and endurance. There is an expectation here for how older men might behave. This is not, this is not elders, as in the, the office within the church, the, the official role. This is just the, the older men. And he's saying that they have a responsibility as older men, particularly in that culture, as, as those who would set the tone. Again, we, we might say, why would Paul play into this patriarchal system? Um, does that mean that God thinks it's OK? And, and I don't think we're finding that at all. I think he's simply saying where older men find themselves in this cultural reference point, in this context, they are going to be carrying um, uh, a certain level of responsibility because they shape the way that a community functions. That's just how it is. So they have a responsibility to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-control, and then sound in their faith, love and endurance. Not giving up, not talking down to people, not um, being overindulgent, and actually commanding respect, which comes, a lot of it comes from showing respect, from having reasonable expectations of the uh, community around them, and helping to shape those expectations and uphold them. Likewise, Paul writes to Titus, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. They are, they are to talk well of other people. And whether that's because Paul, again, is, is uh, responding to a pattern of behaviour he's discovered in Crete, we can't really know. But we do know that uh, elsewhere um, in Paul's writings, he's keen that women should um, behave in a way that's appropriate in the church, not that a way that would have been appropriate in um, worshipping in other temples where patterns of behaviour were very different. So there is to be a, a sense of calm and peace, a sense of trying to foster good relationships, uh, not just say what you like about who you want to talk about however you want to talk about them and that these women then also have the chance to use their um, experience and their position in the community to encourage younger women 
to be like that too. To urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, not to see their roles as simply a duty and maybe a frustration or a bind, but to actually set out to cherish and love those around them. So what we're looking at here is a situation in which um, the younger women are going to be benefiting from the older women's um, perspective, life experience and determination to live in a godly way. And then Paul goes on to write about young men needing to be self-controlled. Um, following the example of the older men, you see how there's, a, there's an expectation on younger men, but it is also partly bounced off the expectation on older men. And Paul says to Titus, the reason why they'll get to that there is partly because of the older men, but also partly, Titus, because of you and the way that you um, show an example, the, the kind of lifestyle that you model when you're with them. We have in verse 8 just an, another version of um, this sense of purpose behind this soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us we are in a position to be the best ambassadors for the good news of jesus by the way we live and this entirely echoes what paul says in chapter one verse one about truth leading to godliness in some ways that brings our look at this passage to an end because verses 11 onwards let me just scroll down so i can see them a bit better there you go verses 11 to 15 um, really just give us um, a, a reason behind these instructions. They don't change the instructions, they're not ethical um, directives in the same way. There's, Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. The reason why we're called to live in a godly way is because grace has been given to us. We've been invited into this community uh, this family of Jesus, we share um, something of Jesus' status by being heirs with him. We, are, we will inherit uh, the new earth with him. And, and so it's entirely appropriate, having been welcomed into this family, that we now do things in the way that that family does them. If you like, there's a family business and there's a code of conduct for that family business. Now that we're in the family, we need to know and then live the way that the family business is supposed to work. There's a reminder here too that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. We touched on this last time round. There is a part of our purpose, and, and I'd send you back to Ephesians 2.10 for this, there's part of our purpose which is to live the kind of good lives that Jesus has in mind for us to live and do the good things Jesus has in mind for us to do because we're part of that family now. These then, writes Paul, are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. But I just want to go back before we finish at this idea that, that there are things that need to be taught and the reason they need to be taught is because they're not necessarily happening now. I think what we're finding here is that Paul is uh, really driving Titus to ask the disciples on Crete to change. 
They only would need teaching something if it's not already understood. And so all these instructions that Paul is to give to the disciples on Crete need to be given because those things aren't happening yet, or at least they're not happening consistently. Slaves are talking back. Women, um, older women are being slanderous and some of them addicted to much wine. It, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to, to get your head around the idea that when people have been drinking, they tend to just be a little bit more selfish. It's, it's hard um, It's hard for them to be able to put others first because having alcohol on board can really mess with your perspective and, and your judgment. So that those things that are happening and need correcting. Um, the older men need to be temperate too, and that's not just to do with alcohol, it's to do with other things as well. But to, to hold self-control, to to be worthy of respect. These things aren't happening consistently enough, and so Titus is given the responsibility by Paul to make those things happen. Now, you may feel this is a bit of a stretch, what I'm going to say next, but I think given what we're seeing about Titus being urged to teach in order to change those discipleship communities, I think it's reasonable to suggest that these churches on Crete with their lack of leadership and with perhaps their um, slightly um, inconsistent doctrine, shall we say, or, or, or poor doctrine maybe, they are, they are in those churches knowing that they have the grace of God and therefore reluctant to change. We are saved, perhaps they would be saying. We are secure in Jesus. Why should we need to be different? Elsewhere, Paul writes in Romans, um, about grace being so powerful um, and how it can the, the grace of Christ can tackle anything that he then eventually has to say with grace, grace being so powerful and being able to cover all the things we do wrong does that mean that we can just live how we like and, and grace will just cover it and he says certainly not that's that's not the case I think the NIV says by no means should you live that way the reality is that church has perhaps for the disciples in Crete been a place of um, without challenge. It's a place where you, you're welcomed and where you learn what grace gives you and then you coast along. You, you just drift. You don't have to change who you are because grace makes you secure and spiritually you're set apart. This very much is in line with what we've seen before, we've talked about before, about this, this kind of getting over the line way of thinking about our spiritual life. As we, as we come to know Jesus, we feel that we've crossed the line from being, um, maybe from being condemned to being saved, or there might be other ways that you'd want to put it, um, from being dead to being alive, maybe. But because that line's been crossed, we, we've kind of arrived, and, and you know everything else is optional. And I think the way Paul is talking to this community through Titus suggests that that is absolutely not the case. In a way, I think Paul is saying, is saying through, through Titus, or maybe Titus himself will say to those disciples, what are you in this for? What, why have you come into this thing that, that's called church? Why are you part of a community of disciples of Jesus? Is it just because um, it, it makes you feel warm and fuzzy? Is it just because... Um, 
you know you're with people who have also become Christians and you like them and they like you and and you get to all have a good whinge about the guy on the corner who doesn't know Jesus yet and goodness me he smells a bit doesn't he but whatever it might be I think that's something of that's going on and and Titus is being given permission to challenge it and forcefully verse 15 these then are the things you should teach encourage and rebuke with all authority and do not let anyone despise you don't says Paul to Titus let anyone treat you badly because you are being challenging in what you're asking of them because to follow Jesus is to be different Winston Churchill says something about how um, how change is improvement and constant change is perfection this idea that we, we don't get to stand still and to be faithful we have to always be challenging ourselves we always have to be looking at not just what we're doing but also how we're doing it in order that we might become more like Jesus that is after all God's intention he longs for us to be conformed to the image of Christ so so when we come to that big so what question the big kind of what does this mean for us question then really our answers have to be built around what difference it makes to us that we have the grace of Jesus if it doesn't change the way we live then actually people looking at us following Jesus won't see anything like who Jesus is it will not be good for the message of hope there's something in the Greek um, around that uh, verse 10 thing um, so it says this is the, the instructions to slaves uh, to show they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our saviour attractive and the wording of that in the Greek has to do with um, setting out jewellery uh, or precious stones in such a way that they look particularly beautiful that's what Paul is driving for and not just with the slaves but with everybody the young men the old men, uh, the older women and the younger women who they will model things to. Make, make that message that you are living out to the community around you. Make it as beautiful as it can be by being the most godly you can be. We're right back to that ethical push, aren't we? Paul really wants the way people do things to be different, to be developing, to be growing. How is the way you live going to be more and more reflective of the personality of Jesus? Because we absolutely want everyone to be saved and know who Jesus is and accept his gift to them. And we also want everybody to be the person that Jesus had in mind for them to be when he created them. Our purpose as disciples is not simply to cross the line from not saved to saved, and collapse or put our feet up but to actually you know get to the point of knowing Jesus and then be be the people who are changed by him be the people whose character is becoming different now I've talked lots of times before about how important it is for us not to just carry guilt into the into our Christian living pattern there's too much of that about there's too much um you can't be a proper Christian unless you do the do do um, and I think that that causes a lot of damage. Saying that it causes a lot of damage doesn't, however, mean that these things aren't still important. It simply means that we go about them in a way that is built on the affirmation and encouragement of those around us. That instruction to those older men came first for a reason. 
if those older men are modeling things well, the rest of the community should follow. Now, our communities aren't all set up in quite that way. And in a way that gives, that spreads the, the expectation more widely. Anybody can come to live a different way, a, a better way, a more Christ-like way, by following the example that you model, whether you're old or young, male or female, whether you are um, slave or free, uh, in the context of, of Titus' letter here. There are no exceptions. Whatever stage of life you find yourself in, whatever situation you find yourself in, there is still the opportunity to live the best way possible and to show people what Jesus is like by doing so. And that means that church is not a place for standing still for the status quo. Church is not a place where you go and simply sink into the armchair of, of comfort and say, I'm good where I am, thanks. Church is a place where you provide stimulation for others to live the way Jesus calls us to live. It's where you look at those around you and say, I want to be more like them because I can see they are more like Jesus. And so I want to change. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the ways in which you have called us, chosen us and shown your love for us. We thank you for sending Jesus that he might demonstrate his love and bring about grace through his death and his resurrection. We thank you that he is alive and by his spirit he is in us. And we ask that we would have uh, a willingness to be prompted. That we would recognise your elbow in our ribs, inviting us to change and become more like you. We pray that we wouldn't allow our church to be a place that settles for the status quo. But that we would be ready to accept from those around us who know us well, the encouragement to grow. Would you give us grace in how we speak to one another, wisdom too, and would you give us courage to accept um, all the ways in which we are encouraged to be more like Jesus, however they are delivered. Well, thank you finally for Paul's letter to Titus and the, the nudge it gives to us take seriously our opportunity not just to know the gospel but to be a living expression of it. Amen. Okay three questions for us as we consider uh, this chapter. The first one, uh, well actually probably all three of them will be variations on things that I've said before because because I think these things are important, because I think the New Testament does tend to come back to the same themes more than once. So first of all, who do you trust enough to tell you where your life in Christ needs to go up a gear? And with that, are you willing to go to them and say, please tell me about the ways in which I might need to change? Question two. In what ways is your life stuck in a status quo? How is your character, how is your following of Jesus and the lifestyle that goes with it? How, you know, what is there in that life which is stuck in the same place and has been there for a long time? Reflect on that in who you are. 
and maybe share it with others if you feel brave so that they might keep you accountable in addressing it. Question three, who are you setting an example to? And perhaps if you've got pen and paper with you, maybe write down three or four people who you can say, well, you know, I, I know those people know I'm a Christian or I know those people in some way look to me for some kind of leadership or, or authority or perhaps they're in my family and I just I'm that generation where they might look up to me. Identify three or four, five or six if you want to, people and then think about how you are going to demonstrate to them what it means to live the Jesus way. That's our questions for this time round. Thank you for listening. And I pray God's blessing on all of us as we go out to live, love and serve our communities as ambassadors for the Jesus way. Amen. Take care.